Let's pray together. Father, we do marvel at your grace and recognize how unworthy we are. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace of getting downwind of ourselves to know that we had no claim on you at all, but our sin claimed and only merited judgment from you. And yet, you were kind towards us and merciful towards us when you could have destroyed us. Lord, would you awaken in our hearts to give and to offer to others the very kind of grace that we have received. So Lord, help us to be the kinds of people that you want us to be. Help us to display the marvelous grace of God. So as we come to this text, Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We'll ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I get the impression from Paul's letters, and even from reading the book of Acts, that the Apostle Paul was a pretty intense guy. I think he had a pretty intense personality. What I mean by that is he is one of the most doggedly determined individuals that you will ever encounter in literature or probably anywhere. It seems to have been hardwired into his personality. He was a man of conviction, and he was a man of action. And if you would cross his conviction or try to thwart his action, you would find yourself facing a fairly formidable man in Paul. You can see this in his personality even before his conversion. He's not content as a Pharisee simply to hate Christians and to disagree with their convictions. He's looking on with approval as this mob comes and stones Stephen to death. He's holding the coats of Stephen's executioners so that they are unencumbered as they murdered this man of God in Acts chapter 7. Saul becomes a terror to Christians, chasing them from city to city and persecuting them and breathing out murderous threats against them, trying to stamp out this heresy that would become known as Christianity. In fact, Paul was on his way to Damascus to destroy Christians when this formidable man finally meets his match. Jesus appears and he says, no more. You are mine now. And Paul replies, calling Jesus, Lord. And Jesus takes this doggedly determined man, points him at the nations, and he says, go. You will bear my name before the Gentiles. And Paul goes, determined to bear Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and even determined to suffer for Jesus' sake. And so the persecutor becomes the persecuted as he travels from city to city preaching the gospel of Jesus. And in place after place, he meets oppression and those who would physically abuse him and even try to kill him. 
But as he goes, he's not alone. He takes along helpers, fellow workers, one of them at the very beginning named Barnabas. Barnabas, in Acts 14, is called an apostle, even. He takes Barnabas along with him and also another guy named John Mark. Barnabas has been a key figure in, in Paul's life after he was converted. After Paul was converted, none of the disciples in Jerusalem wanted to associate with Paul. They didn't want to see Paul. And they didn't want to see him because they had heard about what he was doing to Christians. So they were all still afraid of him until Barnabas comes along. This son of encouragement, Barnabas takes hold of Paul, introduces him to the apostles in Jerusalem, and bears witness to the grace of God at work in Paul. And Paul becomes a part of this apostolic band in Jerusalem. And because of Barnabas, Paul is accepted by Peter and the other apostles as one of their own. And so now... Paul is headed to the maw of the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And he's taking Barnabas with him, and they've got John Mark in tow. And, and they minister together. And they see people come to faith together. They come to Lystra, a city called Lystra. Paul heals a guy. And the people of Lystra begin to treat them like Greek gods. Do you remember this story? They start saying that they start calling Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, which I can imagine after they left this experience, they probably laughed about this. You know, Paul is the, you know, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he doesn't even get to be Zeus. You know, but they, they leave this place, and the people totally mistake who he is. So they go through all of this stuff together, but while they were in Lystra, they also suffered together. Barnabas was there with Paul when the Jews from Antioch and Iconium showed up and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Barnabas was also there when Paul turned out not to be dead after all. And Paul gets up and says to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and preach in Lystra and in Antioch and Iconium and all those places where they wanted to destroy him. Can you imagine Barnabas looking at Paul and going, what is wrong with you? We just ran from there because they, 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 you're not even healed yet. Your body's still half broken from being stoned. You want to go back to these cities? And this is Paul's personality, this dogged, formidable man. Barnabas, we're going. We're going back. And they go. And Acts says that they strengthened the souls of the persecuted disciples living in those cities, encouraging them to continue in the faith and teaching them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. you imagine the apostle showing up in your city with his body just healing from being stoned? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the bond that would have been formed between Paul and Barnabas after going through all of that stuff together. It's one thing to be friends with someone. It's one thing to be a fellow church member with someone. It's another thing to be in a battle together, to risk your life together, to suffer together, to get mistaken for Greek gods together, to prevail together. That's what Barnabas and Paul had. 
it's hard to imagine anything but that they must have been like brothers at this point. But guess who missed all of that suffering in blood and sweat and tears in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch? John Mark. Acts says that John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem right before they headed into those calamities in Antioch and Lystra and Iconium. And so you can imagine how stupefied Paul was when Barnabas comes to Paul. They're going to start. They've Second, first uh, missionary journey's over. Council of Jerusalem, this great church council is over. Barnabas comes to Paul and says, hey, let's take Mark with us on this next journey. You can read about it. I'll just read it to you in Acts chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Right before they headed into all that stuff in Lystra and Iconium, Antioch, John Mark took a hike. Paul said, we're not taking that guy. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So these two brothers, who had been through so much together, could not continue on together anymore. You've got the dogged, formidable Paul on one side doing his dogged, formidable thing. And you've got the son of encouragement on the other side doing his son of encouragement thing. And they cannot get it together. And so they part ways. How hard-headed do you have to be that you can't get along with the guy named son of encouragement? You can't get along with the guy who introduced you to the apostles and who supported you and who helped you when you got stoned outside of Lystra. How stubborn do you have to be to not be able to get along with that guy? Or maybe we might consider it from the other side. How soft-hearted do you have to be that you let your relational intelligence outweigh the hard-edged wisdom of an apostle? Why can't these guys get it together somehow? And reconcile. That's just the story of Barnabas and Paul. And what about us? I guarantee you that if men like Paul and Barnabas, men who are both named as apostles, if they found it hard sometimes, even after all that they've been through together, if they found it hard to reconcile, you can be sure that you and I will sometimes find it difficult to do this as well. In their case, there wasn't even a particular sin that was in view. We can impute to them that was, that was the issue here. Um, and they were having a hard time coming to terms. How much harder would it be for us when there often is sin at the heart of our divisions? We are so prone only to see our own perspective. We are often tempted to be self-interested. Sometimes we just have too much pride to admit a wrong. 
Or sometimes we can't even admit that somebody else might have a legitimate insight that we don't have. And there can be sin that causes a rupture. But sometimes there can be ruptures, like with Barnabas and Paul, where you can't clearly identify who's sinned. The two parties just can't see eye to eye anymore, and they're alienated. What is it that keeps us from being reconciled to one another when we need to be reconciled? If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Our text isn't Acts. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In our last two messages on 2 Corinthians, we've seen that Paul has gotten crosswise with the Corinthians due to an unnamed person who rose up and opposed Paul during his second painful visit to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians, when, when this happened, this person raises up against Paul, the Corinthians apparently didn't do anything about it. And so that rancor that resulted from this divisive encounter led Paul to leave Corinth and not to complete the promised visit that he had, he had made to them. And so he wrote a severe letter to the Corinthians afterward, apparently calling on them to discipline this divisive man. And last week we saw that in all of his confrontations with the Corinthians, he nevertheless maintains this warm-hearted regard for the Corinthians. In spite of everything, all the pain, he, he still has this warm-hearted regard for them. And so we saw last week that Paul's heart for ministry proved to be a heart for joy and a heart for love. And then a third thing that we didn't get to, a heart for restoration. And so today's message is viewing Paul's heart for restoration within the people of God. And so Paul's heart for, re for restoration manifests in what he says in this text to the Corinthians about how to deal with this divisive man that had caused all the issues. And apparently by the time Paul has received this, um, Paul's writing this letter, he has received word that this guy's repented. But Paul's addressing this issue. And there are three things that you want to note here about Paul's heart for restoration. He, you're going to see the necessity of discipline, the necessity of reconciliation, and the necessity of solidarity. The necessity of discipline in verses 5 and 6, the necessity of reconciliation, verses 7 through 9, and the necessity of solidarity in verses 10 through 11. So the first thing is the, ne the necessity of discipline. Everybody look at, verses, at verse 5. Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul addresses his opponent in, in Corinth, this guy who had risen up against him. He addresses him generically. Um, he calls him anyone. If anyone has risen up, okay, everybody knows who the person was, all right? Everybody knows the name. But it's probably the fact that Paul has already, we, we know that he's already heard from Timothy. He's already gotten word that this guy has shifted and, and repented at this point. And so Paul, I think, is just trying to be gentle with the guy. He's not naming the guy. And um, he's just talking about this guy, and he is, he's even, because he's trying to be gentle, I think, trying to minimize the offense a little bit, or at least it, it, how the guy had hurt him. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, which I don't think we should take as an absolute statement. A lot of commentators think that. I think it's not an absolute statement. I think the sense is, is this. He means it's not so much that he hurt me alone, but that we all felt the sting of this man's action. In some way. So he's, he's sort of 
uh, being gentle with the guy, even though he's referring to what happened. In any case, Paul's words are clear about what has happened to this man since he wrote his severe letter urging discipline. He says in verse 6, look at verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So Paul is now acknowledging that the church did take action against the man who had opposed him. They had punished him. In fact, um, th that much is clear. So what was the punishment? One commentator, Margaret Thrall, she describes the punishment this way, and I'm just going to read it to you. I think that she's probably right. She says, The punishment may, of course, have taken the form of an, of an official public rebuke, but there must have been more to it than this, since it had had continuing practical results, which now needed to be annulled by means of some specific action, which Paul's calling them to. Most probably, the offender had been banned from participation in some congregational activities, and in particular from the Eucharist, which is the, the Lord's Supper, end quote. So if a person is banned from congregational activities, including the Lord's Supper, that is what you and I would call excommunication, where somebody has been removed from church membership. So what makes, what's clear then in verse 6 is that what we have before us is an example of corrective congregational discipline that goes as far as it can go. Discipline involves more than ex excommunication. It involves all the steps that lead up to it. But this discipline has gone as far as it can go because this guy has been put out of the church. A couple of things about, a few things about this that I want you to note. First thing is this. Some interpreters think that this disciplined man who's been put out of the church and now is being restored, they think that this is the same person from 1 Corinthians 5. There's a, a plausible case to be made for that. You've been following along in, in these messages. You know that that's not the perspective I take. It's, it looks like Paul had another visit, okay? He had another visit to Corinth and another letter, and that those visits and letters don't match Paul's first visit and first letter to the Corinthians. So I don't think that this is that guy, all right? Some people think that, but this is a different guy, somebody who rose up to oppose Paul in some way, not the guy who had committed incest in 1 Corinthians 5. That's, that's my view on this. But whether you take it to be him or the guy from 1 Corinthians, note also this. This discipline is congregational. He says it's the punishment inflicted by the majority. It's the congregation. Note well that when it comes to church discipline, the, the ones who execute church discipline are not the elders. It's not the pope. Okay? It's the congreg this is a congregational action. You need to understand that one of the reasons that we're Baptist is that we're congregational, and we believe this, this, um, this most extreme action of the church can only be exercised by the congregation. And el the elders can't get together and put somebody out of the church. The congregation has to do that. A pope can't excommunicate somebody. No individual can do that, unless you're an apostle. And we don't think the Pope's an apostle, so it doesn't happen. The congregation can excommunicate. So it's congregational, and it's interesting also that he says it was something done by the majority. Now, it's good that the majority acted, all right? It's great that the majority acted, but Paul had, we believe, asked them to do this. 
that some of them didn't do it was bad. It should not have been the punishment inflicted by the majority. It should have been the punishment inflicted by all of them in obedience to what God had told them through, and I believe, through an apostle. But it was a punishment inflicted by the majority. So most of them apparently had, had, had done this, which was a good thing. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible's teaching about corrective church discipline, let me pause for just a second about the majority thing. We take votes in here to assess congregational will on a matter and even a will on when it comes to church discipline. But we are not just looking for simple majorities when we do these kinds of things. In fact, our con constitution calls for super majorities when we do these kinds of things. Um, and we don't think it's mission accomplished if we end up with a split in the vote. Our, our aim in every single vote is unity. We understand in a fallen world this isn't always going to happen, but that's what our aim is. So we're not just trying to you know, get more people than not to vote a certain way. We want unity in a church, and that's what Paul, I think, wants for them is unity in a church. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible's teaching about corrective church discipline, then Paul's words here are not going to make a whole lot of sense. And all this is going to sound very, really, really strange to you. So it would probably be useful for us just to think for just a minute about the Bible's teaching, especially the New Testament, that it's teaching on discipline. So I just want to veer off to a few other texts real quick to explain this to you. And of course, the, the first big one is where Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, that if a brother sins against you, you're supposed to go to that brother in private and confront him about it. If he repents of his sin, great. You can be reconciled to your brother and the matter is closed. Now, what's presented here as the first stage of discipline in Matthew chapter 18 is really just kind of the normal interaction that's supposed to be going on among us as believers, which means sometimes we're going to sin against each other and we're going to go to each other and we're going to work through it. That's just the normal thing that's supposed to be happening in a church. But what Matthew 18 is contemplating is what happens if a person stops repenting? They get confronted with their sin. They don't repent of their sin. They won't be reconciled. What's supposed to happen? If he doesn't repent, Jesus says, and you aren't reconciled, then you need to take along a couple of witnesses and confront him again. If he repents of his sin, great. You can be reconciled with him. The matter is closed. That's it. That's the end of it. If he doesn't repent, then you take it to the church. King Jesus says you take this to the church. And you put the matter before the whole church so that the church can exhort him to repent. If he repents, hallelujah. After the church exhorts him, if he repents, wonderful. You can be reconciled. The matter is closed. It's over. But if he doesn't repent, even after it's brought to the church, then Jesus says that you're to treat him like a tax gatherer or Gentile, which means you treat him like an unbeliever, which means you excommunicate him. You put him out of the community. That's the normal process of church discipline that should be happening in churches. Paul himself, this is the second text, Paul himself talks about the necessity of this kind of corrective church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says there that there's a man who's having an affair with his stepmother, which according to the book of Leviticus is incest. This sin is so bad. It's known throughout the church. In this case, they don't need any more witnesses because it's, matter, it's already been established in public. 
Paul says this affair is scandalous. It's something that's not even done among the Gentiles. But it's really fascinating because the thing that he's really put out about is not the incest. He's, he's put out about the church's response to the incest. They had failed to act. They had not disciplined this unrepentant member. And Paul says that they are the ones who are arrogant and puffed up for failing to excommunicate the man. And he explains that it's necessary for the church's purity and for the church's witness to take drastic action when a church member sins with a high hand and then refuses to repent. The church must respond for the sake of its own holiness and witness, even if it comes to excommunication, which Paul equates to handing someone over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul mentions this same kind of discipline in Titus 3.10 in a situation that I think closely parallels what we're looking at in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10 is dealing with a person stirring division in the church. Titus chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 9. It says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Which means you got somebody stirring up quarrels that are false teachings within the church. And then Paul says this, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. That phrase, have nothing to do with them, is the final stage of corrective church discipline, excommunication. And notice here that the sin is doctrinal in nature. So discipline can be necessary for both moral errors and for doctrinal errors. Notice that the divisive person in Scripture is never the person who's teaching the truth. Our culture treats truth bearers as divisive people. That's not how the Bible treats it. The divisive people in the church are those who are departing from the truth. You warn the divisive man once and after, and after a second warning... You have nothing to do with them. And so that's what happens here with the Corinthians. That's what they've done to this person in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, five, uh, five and 6. This person who rose up against Paul, they have had nothing to do with him through excommunicating this member. And now Paul is saying this. For such a one, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And that last little part is enough is the part you need to pay attention to. Some of your translations say that the discipline for this guy has been sufficient, which means it's time to end the punishment and restore this guy to fellowship. How does Paul know that the punishment has been enough? How would we know that a punishment has, has been enough for, for someone? Would Paul say that the punishment is enough and that it's time to restore this guy to the congregation if that guy were still vocally and persistently opposing Paul, like if the guy was still doing the very same thing that he was disciplined for, would Paul say, it's, it's enough now, he can come back in? No. That's not what's going on here. The only measure of a punishment's sufficiency is whether or not it has led to that person's repentance. Once they have repented, that's enough. Discipline. That's it. Just like in Matthew 18. There's no need for more. Sin causes the alienation of the believer from the church, but repentance causes the believer's restoration to the church. 
And the point of church discipline is not to be mean. The point of church discipline is hopefully to cause the sinning member to want to come back, to feel the sting of the alienation, and to want to come back and to, be re to repent and to be restored. That's why you have discipline in a church. Without it, people are emboldened to sin with impunity. And it corrupts the church in manifold ways whenever this kind of discipline is, is absent. Some of you have heard me tell the story before of a church that I was once a member of. And this church was very large. It had thousands of members. But I got involved with uh, one particular family after teaching a Sunday school class on marriage. This woman, she's there alone. She comes up to me and she shares with me that her husband, who was not there with her, who, but who is also a member of the church, he's been staying out multiple nights a week, like five and six nights a week. He goes from work and he goes straight to the bars and he drinks a lot and he's gone at, you know, all hours and they, he's got a wife and kids at home and he's just doing this night after night after night and she's at her wit's end and so I, I agree to meet with her husband since he was, he's a member of the church. I meet with the guy at a coffee shop. I confront the guy. He confessed that yes, he was indeed going out to bars all hours of the night, five to six nights a week. He's going to have cocktails. He even admits to me that he's chatting up the ladies that he's meeting at this, at this bar. He denied any sexual immorality, but I think he may have been lying about that. In any case, he's drinking way too much, absent to his wife and his kids. It was just appalling behavior for a husband and a father. And so I told him right there that he wasn't just in danger of losing his family. He was in danger of losing his soul. He was not following Jesus anymore. And so we kept meeting. He said he would try to turn things around. We kept meeting to try to keep him accountable, to cease and desist from all this destructive behavior. But it was like one step forward and two steps back. Until one day his wife calls me and she's in distress because he had stayed out all night the night before and she found him after hearing the alarm in his car going off. He came home inebriated and he crashed the car into the neighbor's tree. And she had to go fish her inebriated husband out of the car and take care of all of that mess. And she calls me, and she's humiliated, and she's just at the end of her rope emotionally. I had confronted him. I had confronted him with a witness. And, and frankly, it was past time to, to take it to the church. So I went to one of the pastors and laid out the whole situation, told him it was time to discipline this guy. He said, I'm going to go talk to my superior. He calls me back, and I kid you not, the pastor says to me over the phone, we know what the Bible says, but we just can't do that. Family's falling apart, but we just can't do that. We can't intervene here in a way that would snap this guy to attention, maybe. That leads me to have a, a meeting with the pastor of the church. And after we just, I lay it all out before him, and he says, our church is set up for steps one and two of Matthew 18, but not for step three. Well, guess what? Step one and two are irrelevant if there's no step three. If there's no ultimate sanction from, from the church. And then that was it. They weren't going to do anything for this guy, which this wife and children desperately needed the church to intervene on their behalf with this guy. And there was nothing that they were going to do. And sadly, that's where a lot of churches are. They have completely rebelled against the Bible's commands to discipline wayward members. And you know what happens in those churches? They become filled with unrepentant sinners. 
many of whom aren't really believers at all. And yet the church's indifference still treats them as if they are believers. And so they are emboldened in their sin and the church is compromised. And people's lives and faith are destroyed. It is so destructive to turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. Guess what else happens in those churches? In our church, if we neglect this, division happens. Where there is no discipline, people get crosswise with each other, and they may never reconcile with each other. They just sort of avoid each other, and the church becomes riven with division. And all the spiritual power and vitality of the witness of the church is compromised. That's why we can't flee from the Bible's command to discipline. We have to be willing to have the uncomfortable confrontations. You get crosswise with somebody in the church, you don't go... We, None of us wants to go to excommunication. We don't expect excommunication. But what we do expect is that if you get crosswise with somebody in the church, you go to that person and you work it out. That's what we would, we would expect for, for all of us. We have to be willing to have those uncomfortable confrontations. You see a brother going off on his own way and forsaking Christ and his family and holiness, you go after him. You don't just let it happen. You can't have restoration without confronting the issue that causes the division. You can't have restoration by pretending nothing happened. So there's a necessity for discipline in every single church. Jim mentioned this, but at our, at our last members meeting, we brought several names to you of members who are in a discipline process right now. Unless they repent by the time we meet again next month, we will vote to excommunicate them from our fellowship. We are not doing that to be mean. We are doing it for their good and for ours in hopes that the discipline will one day be sufficient, be enough to bring about their repentance and restoration. So you be praying for them, and you be praying for us, and you be praying for our, our meeting. If this text is teaching anything, it's teaching the necessity of discipline within a church. But Paul is also teaching the necessity of reconciliation. Now, before I read verse 7, let me catch back to verse 6 so you can get it in the flow. It says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now that this guy who has opposed Paul has repented, Paul says it's time to welcome him back to the fellowship. Forgiving him means no longer holding his sin against him. It's over. If he ticks you off at some point in the future, you don't throw it back in his face, all the stuff he did in the past. Okay, It's over, right? You don't hold his sin against him. God, you're going to forgive him just as God forgives you. God has forgiven us, so we forgive others like we've been forgiven. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you mean that? If you mean it, then this is how you forgive. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, they've got to forgive this man. How many times are you supposed to forgive a repentant sinner? It's really interesting. After Jesus gave that teaching on church discipline in Matthew 18, Peter asks him. Church discipline, right? If he won't repent, you put him out of the church. But if he repents... He stays in. Peter says, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? 
when he sins against me? Seven times? Seventy times seven. Which is Jesus' way of saying, your forgiveness must be lavish. It must be unlimited. Genuine repentance must always be met with our forgiveness. Just like God meets our genuine repentance with forgiveness, that's how we meet others' genuine repentance. Welcoming a person back after discipline means not only forgiving the offender, but Paul says, comforting him. It means that you're going to do everything you can to help heal the sorrow that comes to him because of his sin and because of the alienation from the body that's occurred. It means that you're going to put your arm around him and you're going to say, look, it's okay. I love you. We love you. It's over. I promise you're one of us. We couldn't be happier that you're back. You're going to comfort this brother when he comes back. Why are you going to do this? Well, how would you feel if you sinned and got put out and you came back and you're just laid low? You know you really messed it up. And you're back. What are you thinking when you come back? Are they going to love me like they loved me before I did this? That's what you're thinking. And there's a question mark. And so you have to comfort that brother. That's what you're going to do. And if you don't do it, look at the end of verse 7. Lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If you don't forgive him, if you don't comfort him, then he may be swallowed up by his own grief. And the darkness of those fears that I'll never be accepted, they, they can overwhelm a person. Chrysostom commented on this text, and he says that this is the kind of grief, being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, it's the kind of grief that could lead someone to suicide or to a kind of moral indifference that could lead to even worse behavior than before. What begins as a godly sorrow could turn into a worldly sorrow, and the guy could end up breaking off all relations with the church and with Christians and even to abandon the faith altogether. That kind of grief can carry him far, far away from the church and from the truth and from Christianity. You have to console him or face the real possibility of losing that person altogether. So Paul is calling clearly for forgiveness and for consolation on the part of the body when, once this person has come back in repentance. And so he says in verse 8, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, notice that word reaffirm in the ESV. It's actually, the, the original term is actually a legal term. It means to confirm or to ratify or to make something legally Binding. Paul uses the same term in Galatians 3, chapter 10, when he talks about a covenant that has been ratified. And so I think what's going on here is that this suggests that if the church has taken an official action to ex excommunicate a member, they need to take official action to restore that member and to ratify their love for him, to make it official. Our own church's constitution calls for something like this. Not only would the church have to vote to receive that person back into membership, but our Constitution also says this. I'm just going to quote. It says, It is desirable in the case of public sin that a confession be made before the church in a specially called meeting so that the church can freely extend forgiveness. End quote. That's what our aim is. For the for restoration where the church is freely extending forgiveness. 
Look at verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Paul wrote them that letter, that severe letter that he, he, we've talked about in here. He did it not just to get them to excommunicate the guy, but to restore him once the punishment was sufficient for the man's repentance. Paul says, I wrote to you to see if you're going to be obedient. You're supposed to do what I tell. I'm an apostle. You do what I say. And so I wrote to you to see if you're going to be obedient in everything, not just in excommunicating the guy, but in restoring the guy and comforting him and reaffirming your love for him. Because Paul's heart all along was restoration. That was his heart for the ministry, restoration coming from a reconciliation. And so that's what our heart has to be in all of this. When we come together in a few, re a few weeks to address matters of church discipline, it will be a matter of grief if there is no repentance on the part of, of these folks. We want them to repent and come back to us. And if they do, our job is to have open arms and to, to welcome them. And truly, that should be our heart with anyone that we are alienated from. I, and, I, and we would say this even from people that we may be alienated from who aren't under formal church discipline. If there are brothers and sisters in Christ, our desire is reconciliation. That's what we want. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're holding out hope for. But if we're ever going to experience that, we have to be praying for it. And we also have to be doing the things that make for reconciliation. Which means we don't gossip. We don't slander. We don't poison the well that we're going to be asking them to drink from if they return. No, we keep the waters clean and we stand with our arms open saying, you are most welcome here. Repentant brother, come home. So Paul speaks of the necessity of discipline, the necessity of reconciliation. Finally, the necessity of solidarity. Everybody look at verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake. In the presence of Christ. Paul is basically saying that he's in solidarity with the Corinthians when they forgive and restore the offender. He's just as willing to forgive this guy as they are once the guy's re repented. And he's doing it for their sake. Because it will be good for them to have this man restored to them. And he's doing it, it says, in the presence of Christ. Which means that he knows Christ is bearing witness to what they do and don't do in the church. And Paul is ready to forgive and offer mercy, just as Christ has commanded us to do. Why is he willing to do that? Well, look at verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, the ESV says outwitted. That's not a bad translation, but I would argue it's not the best rendering of this text. Some other translations render it as so that we wouldn't be taken advantage of. By, by Satan. Those are true things about what is communicated in this particular word. But it's, it's, it's not capturing one key part. The word translated outwitted is, is the same word that Paul uses elsewhere to talk about defrauding or cheating or stealing for, from someone. So the sense is actually something like this. Anyone you forgive, I forgive also, so that we would not be defrauded or stolen from by Satan. Do you see what he's saying here? 
He's saying that our failure to forgive could be a situation that Satan himself could exploit to cheat or to steal from us. To steal what? To steal that person from us. To take the grieving man who can't find forgiveness with God's people, he's going to exploit that situation. You got a guy that wants to be reconciled, you won't reconcile with him? Yeah, that's a foothold for the devil. Verse 11, we don't want to be stolen from by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We know what Satan's designs are. Jesus has told us. What is he trying to do in the world? What's he trying to do in our church? John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Satan wants to exploit situations and steal people away through our hard-heartedness. 1 Peter 5, 8-9, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Resist the devil. How do you resist the devil in a situation of reconciliation? You have to forgive and console and reaffirm your love. That's how you resist the devil. If you refuse to forgive someone whom God says that you should forgive, if you harden your heart against that person, it's like you're inviting Satan into the church. You're giving him a foothold. You're, you're ringing the dinner bell to Satan and saying, come and get it. If you know what Satan wants to do, and, and we do know, then you won't allow that kind of foothold by hardening your heart in that kind of a way. So you stay humble and ready to receive and to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to repentant returning brothers and sisters. So if you have a heart for restoration like Paul, you're going to see the necessity of discipline, the necessity of reconciliation, and the necessity of solidarity. That was Paul's heart on the other side of this discipline, to see everyone brought back together. You can see that that was his heart in this text. I think you can see that that was his heart in the matter with, with Barnabas. After those two guys split up, Barnabas's name doesn't appear again in the book of Acts. But it does appear again in Paul's writings. In particular, about eight years later, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. There's about, I don't know, probably seven or eight years after they had their blow-up, Paul, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. And Paul still refers to Barnabas as he would any fellow worker and apostle. He hasn't written Barnabas off at all. What became of their dispute over John Mark? Did they ever come to terms? I think Paul gives us a bit of an answer to that question towards the end of his life. And at this point, when he refers to it, it's in 2 Timothy. And this is almost 20 years after the blow-up with, with Barnabas. Paul is in a Roman prison. He is waiting for his execution. And Paul is certain that this is the end of the line for him. And Paul writes this second letter to Timothy, and of all the things that he could ask for when he's writing to Timothy, he makes this request of Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 9. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. 
For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. I don't know what happened in the 20 years between Paul and Barnabas' blow-up and here, but apparently they eventually came to the same conclusion about Mark. And when Paul was at his end, about to die, and the axe was going to fall, he says, bring to me Mark. This is, he's useful to me. I'm sharing this with you because I want us to have an attitude of hopefulness, of warm-hearted longing towards people who we become alienated from for whatever reason. That needs to be our heart. That's what we need to be hoping for and praying for. And it's what we need to be hoping for and praying for as we come to our members meeting coming up. You be praying for brothers and sisters that are in a discipline process. We pray and, and not give up on them. And let's not give up on each other. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use your word to help us to think our, your thoughts after you. I pray that you would make us faithful to do what you've told us to do and to order our lives together in this church, in the way that you've told us, even if it's countercultural and strange to the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a holy church. I pray that you'd make every single one of us in here quick to repent of sin, that we wouldn't hold on to sin, but that we would turn from it and renounce it. And that we would make things right with brothers and sisters when we sin against them. I pray that you would give reconciliation in relationships where there are rifts. And I pray that you bring about restoration. Lord, we know that we're not sufficient for these things, but you do all kinds of miracles because of Jesus, who is not dead but is alive. He is our hope and our peace, He's our unity. And I pray that you would do all these things for us through him, for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.